founder of Nonprofit Utopia. I want to welcome you to today's live stream. Thank you so much for taking up your time to be with us. We are going to be talking about a living testimony of resilience. And our guest for today is Vanessa McNorton. She and I graduated from high school together three years ago. <laughs> yes, <it was. laughs> well, one of those digits is right. <laughs> I'll leave it at that. But at, at any rate, I'm sorry. I was scrolling down my Facebook feed and I saw this wonderful post from Vanessa. And it was just you know, it was something I really had to stop and meditate on. You know, we're focusing on resilience in the month of March for the nonprofit Utopia community. And I think what she wrote really, really personifies what we want to address. And I want to thank also my co-host today. We have John Emenecker. It was John's idea to actually focus on resilience. And as a result, of John's idea and um, developing you know, programming, I think we're gonna have a really wonderful month. So at any rate, I'm, I just wanna quote part of what Julie, I'm sorry, <laughs> what Vanessa was writing. She says, one year ago today, quadruple bypass surgery, actually spent eight hours pre-transplant taking all the EK, EEG and more E-tests passed and no heart issues. I received a call that I received a kidney transplant on 2-2020, a heart attack two days later. That's why I praise him. I get a testimony. <laughs> and you know, for those of you who know that song, I got a testimony. I could just hear her singing that song yes. as she was writing. Yes. So, yes. So she's going to tell us more about that testimony too. You know, she's a living testimony mm -hmm. of resilience and what a life well lived is. So Vanessa went on to write about her journey to wellness over the past year. And she also shared with us who was there for her. And I want to caution now, when you start naming names, you leave somebody out. Always. <laughs> so charge it to, you know, just a memory lapse yeah. or just um, a, a certain focus at the time this was written mm -hmm. and not to Vanessa's heart, right? So if, if you're one of those people, you know, feel free, you can chime in and let us know. But, you know, just know that if you've been left out, it is, you know, not because of her heart. And her story is so powerful that, you know, I didn't think it right to just leave it on Facebook, right? I thought it was really, really important to share with others. You know, her story is inspiring. And I understand at some point she'll be writing a book. But at any rate, uh, we want to just talk about her, her story of faith and mindfulness and resilience can serve as an example to to those of us in our daily lives, in our professional lives. All right, so enough of that. I want to thank you so much for joining us today, Vanessa. And before we get started, you. can you give us a little bit of your professional background um, and I guess the background that brought you to us in your, in your resilience 
struggles, you know, give us a little bit more detail about what I just shared. Sure. Um, my professional background, I um, attended Howard University uh, undergrad and got a degree in finance, loved Howard. I transitioned, I was at Northern Illinois for two years and transitioned to Howard. So it was the best decision of my life. Uh, decided to go into business, actually banking, because uh, at Whitney Young, I was in the DECA Club, Distributive Education Clubs of America. Ah. And my junior and senior year, I had a part-time job at First Chicago Bank. So I was able to bless to go back after graduation and work full-time. And I worked um, for the executive vice president. And I actually kind of was an intern. I toured um, all the different sites and worked in all the different areas and decided on branch banking. So I was a branch banking manager at First wow. Chicago and did that 10 years. Wow. And then was like, there's something else I want to do. There's something else I want to do. <laughs> and then I went on a wing and a prayer and decided to go into education um, and started as a special ed teacher and our wow. special needs teacher. And then um, became a third grade teacher and, and got my, because my salary was slashed in half. I was like, I got to decide on what, you know, what I need to do. So went to St. Xavier, got, uh, received my uh, couple of master's degrees. And then I transitioned to um, a principal position, which thought worked very well because I was able to get that foundation as a teacher and, and move up and really get a feel for just all staff, you know, and the needs of staff. Mm -hmm. And from there, I was coaching and modeling instruction, definitely with uh, issues that would happen in school. There were restorative justice issues. And I was kind of conflicted between uh, the actual rules and policy, but in terms of really meeting the needs of the students and looking at empathy and compassion and not just right. putting a child out of the classroom, you know. Right. So I went ahead and went the route of, um, and that was when I, um, well, I decided to, I was like, the restorative justice community really needs people that are vested in them. And um, that is the volunteer work I do. I do some training, too, with an organization called, a nonprofit called Nehemiah Trinity Rising. So loving that. Um, during, before, right before I joined the nonprofit, I actually, well, with the, the whole journey, I could go backwards. So at age 30, I was diagnosed. Well, they weren't exactly sure University of Chicago, but then they diagnosed me with lupus. And I was having symptoms previously where I wasn't eating um, enough, but I was working out. I was working out like three times a, a week doing um, aerobics and different activities and uh, kickboxing. But I was starting to yeah. I, could, I was starting to deteriorate. I was starting to get weak. I could tell that I was um, having hair loss, and um, went to the doctor. And then that's after three days, and I really couldn't even talk. There were issues of that and speaking. Wow. Yeah, I had like a mini stroke. You know, I think in the movie Sybil, my hand it was like that. My hand was going up and down. Okay. Um, so it was really an interesting journey because lupus was still kind of that. You know, we're not, we know it's an autoimmune, but we're not clearly sure how to treat it. You know, unknown mm -hmm. cure, unknown cause. And so I was in the hospital for a week, um, went back home. They definitely diagnosed me. And then I 
was able to. That was a that was a rough period because it was more um, non-systemic, more skin for me instead of organs. But later, you know, it did affect my organs. And then at forty, you know, hanging out in New Orleans, having a good time, you know, <laughs> tinges of pain. And then I came. I did come back home. They only lasted like five seconds. I had about five of them. Came back home. Didn't sleep well that night. And um, I actually told my parents I was living with them at the time, helping them out. And I, I said, you know, there's something weird. Let's let's go to the emergency room. They're like, for what? I said, well, let's go check it out. And they said if I hadn't come, the emergency room folks said if I hadn't come, I might have had a massive heart attack. Wow. So they placed wow. a stint. Yeah. So I was able to have the stint go to work, you know, like the next day, you know, no pity party. I got to go to work, you know. Wow. Yeah, yeah. And then with the kidney disease, um, that kidney disease, I, you know, didn't know where that was coming from. My parents had passed um, and my brother had passed. So, you know, dealing with uh, the caregiving issues and and you don't realize how stress really impacts your body. So I'm thinking right. part of that was that issue, too, even though right. I was under the care of the people um, at the hospital. But then they they were like, you know, your kidneys have deteriorated. You're going to need to have dialysis. And once I had dialysis, I definitely felt much better. You know, it took about two to three weeks off or so, no longer than a month. Went back, you know, to I had the full time job at that point, coaching. Um, and I, you know, just went right ahead and started back working and would have dialysis treatments. Then since I was working part time, I mean, full time and working a full day, I would have my treatments at uh, night. So I would go to the dialysis center at like six and would have the treatments from six to midnight. Wow. It was, they called it nocturnal <laughs> and I would have them from six to six. So all of us that were working did that and, you know, it was said that we would have better clearance, clearance numbers and we would feel better, which we did. And they had stopped that nocturnal. And then I realized it was too much of a hectic schedule because I would, you know, sleep maybe four hours or five hours and get up for work. And sometimes I traveled. So it was a lot, you know, it was a lot. Mm -hmm. And then I ended up and then dialysis became kind of hard on my body, too. So I ended up um, working, you know, just part time and, and doing some volunteer work. And um, I ended up doing dialysis at five in the morning. So I would get up at about 3.34 and get my, my dog together, who was my blessing. <laughs> and I would go ahead and go to my treatments like at five o'clock in the morning. And, and I would have four hour treatments four days a week. I mean, three days a week. So that was, that's, that's kind of that journey. And then of course they called me for the transplant, hallelujah. But I was on dialysis for a long time. Wow. Yeah, I was on for 10 years. Wow. And, um, yeah. Yeah. That's longer than most people, you know, and that, you know, are seeking kidneys as well, are living donors as well, too. And then um, they called me for the kidney. I just knew it was going to be sometime in 2020, not like <laughs> once, you know, right after 2020 began. Right. And yeah. My neighbors uh, tried to call me. I was knocked out. My dog wasn't even responding. So my neighbors were knocking on my door and you know, like, Vanessa, come on, come on, you know, and then my, my next door neighbor, Joyce, she was like, we accept the kidney, we accept it. And they were like, that's not how it's done. She <laughs> you know, needs to physically come in. And she, you know, they're like, but we accept it. Don't give it to anybody. 
So that was a blessing because the there was one person ahead of me to get that kidney, but the person needed a kidney and a pancreas that matched, you know, the same person. And I was able to get that kidney. So that kidney blessed me. I'm definitely, they tell us that after a year, we can reach out to the family. And I'm definitely going to reach out to the family and have a conversation. But I ended up um, getting the kidney transplant, uh, a lottery number that could be played to 2020. (laughs) And that was a blessing. And then two days later, my nurse was, I was in the hospital still. You only stay five days. Because I was like, oh, I'll be home in five days. And the nurse was um, giving me my medication. And I um, felt weird. I felt clammy. My arms felt clammy and kind of cold. And I knew it was not normal, you know, especially since I had that weird situation in New Orleans at 40. And I was like, this is not normal. And praise the Lord, the nurse was still in the room. And then she gave me some nitroglycerin. They ran me around to have these tests. They determined I did have a heart attack. And yeah, the issue was to save the kidney, save the kidney. Um, And they were trying to, you know, definitely protect the heart, but they needed to save that kidney, which was still kind of asleep. So I had a couple of dialysis treatments in the hospital before it woke up. And um, then I ended up you know, they're like, you got a couple options, you know, now COVID, you know, when I first arrived, it was like, okay, it's out there, but it's not, we're not closing down anything, visitors. And then, you know, everything kind of shut down and it was still a scary situation. People, you know, doctors and nurses were still like, okay, we're not sure what's happening here. So I'm like, should I have this surgery? What are we doing? So he gave, he was like, you could go home, And then we could wait, you know, make sure the kidney is stable or we can, you know, he said, you're young. I'm like, I'm 50, I'm 56, you know, (laughs) that I was, I was like, I'm not young. He's like, no, you're young. He -hmm. said, let's do it. You know? So we weighed the pros and cons and I had the quadruple bypass, which we didn't know I would have had because I did all those tests as you had mentioned. Wow. That's kind of that story in a nutshell. It reminds me of Job. Mm. That, that that is amazing. That's amazing. So so John, what do you think? Yeah. Um you thank you for sharing your story. You faced quite a bit. Um you faced lupus, a heart attack, kidney disease, and other challenges in life. And you were resilient. Um what suggestions would you give to those watching? what they could do when they're faced with adversity? Yeah, definitely. I mean, the the first and foremost thing is to pray. You know, that was my saving grace where I just didn't just randomly pray. I prayed specifically. You know, I asked God, you know, heal my body now. And I want to do A, B, and C. So I was really prayer specific for people that are prayerful. Definitely that. Um, For people that... You know, because in the dialysis uh, center, you know, there's people that are just really angry, you know, with all of this and, and, you know, with the lupus, there were people very angry, very upset, but it's always good to try to find somebody to talk to. So if it's not a family member um, or if it's not a, a good friend, you know, those are two options, then talk to that social worker. You know, there's social workers at the centers that people can speak with. And then of course, support groups, 
So support groups I was involved in, um, support groups when I had lupus. So mm -hmm. at Trinity United Church of Christ, we had a support group that we formed for the loop, with the lupus group. And then I decided, hey, you know, this unknown cure, unknown cause situation, this is, you know, I'm like, what? You know, I had one of my good friends, Cookie, had childhood lupus. So you're oh. talking about as a young child, she's dealing with this. And I'm like, wow. you know, you have so many levels of people that are, you know, doing very well and not doing well. So I, you know, I was like, let's figure this out and let's help minorities overcome this. So definitely support groups. I joined um became, I was on the board of directors of the Lupus Foundation in charge of minority outreach. You know, that's the side of my job. You know, that wasn't part of the job. So that was volunteer work and definitely like the Black Women's Expos. I used to help organize those, you know, with mm -hmm. um, the support group and every year have a table, you know, for the three days, the Friday through Sunday, so people can talk and, and look at the literature and, and talk about and share some of the symptoms they have and just have a discussion. So that's one of the ways um, also through discussion and, you know, just just talking to people. It's important because all this gets bottled up and you're yeah. frustrated, but you can't explode, you know. So it's and, and you and all that stress manifests itself and it's not healthy. But I think for other people that are dealing with this um, and dealing with health challenges, that they feel that they can't do much with, I think they definitely need to reach out for support groups, definitely reach out to their doctors. Um, I did get on a couple of sites for the Kidney Foundation and just listen to some of the patients. And I did that like right after I I finished it and you know got my, my actual transplant and just wanted to hear about the conversation. So definitely talking to people and sharing uh, information and, and just stepping out on faith and just saying, hey, you know, this is what's mm -hmm. happening. You never know who you can connect with that, you know, wants to hear your story. And if that doesn't help, then, you know, you got to talk to the doctors and tell them how you feel. Yeah. Thank you, John, for that question. <laughs> yeah. You know, I was looking, you know, at your post and I think one of the strategies you use for coping is being grateful and acknowledging people around you who helped. You had a very long list of people. I'm not going to share all of those names, but you know, some of the folks that jumped out and grabbed me were folks that we were in high school with. Um, for example, there was Diane Logan, Tina Raglan, Dr. Julie Taylor, Meryl Billingsley, Santita Jackson, and Stephanie Howard Ireland. Can you share a little bit about the roles that each of those women played in your recovery? Sure, sure. Um, I'll definitely start with, I'll start with Dr. Julie Taylor. So Julie and one of my other, and Julie was my line sister at Howard. She went to oh, Indiana okay. with me, but she became my line sister. So uh, we were line sisters. There were 34 of us, very yeah. close-knit group even to this day. And she was really um, the one that, talked to the doctors, she as well as Joya, and really made sure that they were treating me right. You know, having that voice uh, that mm -hmm. can speak that language, you know, mm -hmm. and they were making making sure, you know, if I was in pain, that I know which, you know, if I had a pump, I can hit that pump, or if I needed more drugs, certain <laughs> ones, I could tell them I need some more of A, B, and C, and 
This one is 12 hours. This one is six hours. So <laughs> she was that, she and, and Joy were that voice for the doctors. And they checked on me. They would, you know, after their jobs, they would come by and make sure I was okay and checked on me. Now they made sure my house was in order, you know, um, because I had a, you know, I was supposed to only be gone a week. And then once I had the uh, heart attack and had the bypass, that ended up being rehabs. So I had rehab at Shirley Ryan Ability Lab for two weeks. Wow. I had home rehab for two months and I had three months of rehab at University of Chicago walk-in and that was group rehab. So they made sure um, that everything was taken care of in my house. So my dog was taken care of. My neighbor made sure that happened. Wow. And that Miles was taken care of. Miles Davis, my cockroach. <laughs> <laughs> so they made sure he was taken care of. So they did that part. Um, Tina Raglan was extremely instrumental and so was Meryl in, in gathering um, items for me when I got home, like those paper goods that were in shortage, mm -hmm. you know, to make sure I had the toilet paper. That's paper. why we couldn't find any. Yes, yes, that's what I was saying. How did she get them, you know? But she made sure I had those essential items and I had food in the refrigerator. So she, I mean, she lives all the way in Yorkville. So she and her wow. husband drove to make sure that I had the items. And then wow. she would visit me at, at home. She would visit me, I mean, at the hospital. And then uh, Diane Logan, you know, one of my closest friends as well, one of my buddies that calls me every day. And she made sure that I had a GoFundMe because I needed some funds when I, I came out because I was on disability. Mm -hmm. And she made sure that I had a little bit of, you know, extra change and I needed it because I needed, you know, Miles ended up going to a, um, like a, a overnight, um, not a daycare anymore and not with my neighbors. So he was being taken care of elsewhere. So oh, those wow. funds were needed for that. So she set that up. That is awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And definitely Santita. Santita, the first <laughs> day I had my transplant, she was right there. She was right at the hospital oh. checking on me, visiting. Um, I've known her since kindergarten. Wow. Kindergarten, elementary school. We called it grammar school back then, John J. Persian. <laughs> and then Whitney Young and Howard. She pledged me at Howard. So I've known Santita Jackson for a while. So she was there. She was calling me, checking on me, praying for me. All these people, there were so many people praying for me. Um, my good friend, Chevette, who went to High Park, she was just praying for me. She would play the music for me when I wasn't feeling well. So she was a blessing as well. And then, of course, Stephanie Howard Ireland, um, as you had mentioned, Stephanie was a, a true blessing. She lives in the Maryland area and she mm -hmm. was praying for me. I had met her mother at a gathering. Her mother doesn't live far from me. Okay. Um, and she actually was always asking and praying. So you know, Stephanie was calling and praying for me, you know, throughout the journey. So they were just totally instrumental. Uh, my neighbors, my line sisters, all my friends were just a part of this whole journey. And I felt the prayers. I felt the prayers because everybody was like, you know, there were so many people praying for you. Yeah. Actually, you know, they had the gladness with the mm -hmm. kidney transplant. Then the heart attack, they were like, what? You know, <laughs> dealing with double. I mean, this yeah. is insane. So that's when those prayers started flooding and I felt mm -hmm. them. I felt them. Yes. Oh, that is awesome. And before John asks his question, I just want to share this comment again. 
from Cell Dunlap. I don't know if you saw it. You were talking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. God prefers specific petitions, not that willy-nilly shooting from the hip pontification. So true. Yeah. So true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and you should meet Cell. He he shoots from the hip. He does. Okay. Yeah, like no no black, him, no, I mean, everything is black or white, no gray. Say straight, no chaser. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That's funny, John. Yeah. You look like you have memories, John. <laughs> you had a lot of people praying and supporting you um, when you were going through this. You also took a very active role um, and you joined the board um, for the Lupus Foundation and you've also got involved with another um, organizations too. How did um, sharing your experience um, on the on the board and also other organizations help you when it came to, fo- to focusing on these challenges? Sure. And one of the people that I just want to backtrack, I didn't mention Meryl. Uh, kind of in general, but I didn't call her out. But Meryl Billingsley has been the absolute phenomenal friend. Um, she has been wonderful as well, definitely helping me throughout the whole journey. And even to this day, we, we talk on the phone, but you know, through the journey, she would visit me at the hospital and she would just sit there and just listen. She has a very sweet, silent spirit and um very calming personality and she she was extremely helpful and a good peace maker and a very good listener um and very helpful you know one of she was as well as Chevette and Diane those key people that were strategizing to make sure that everything was working working well so in terms of me working with like the lupus foundation and different boards how, your question was how did that help me i'm sorry john yeah how does it help you with um what you were experiencing like going through lupus um and the um kidney disease the dialysis um um yeah yeah so definitely with the lupus and working with people in illinois and chicago on those boards it really helped me i mean again not gain knowledge i gained a lot of knowledge so the, my thing was, let me get as much knowledge and information from these key people to share it with minorities and minority communities and to be able to be able to talk the language and understand what it is and be able to, you know, share in some of the symptoms and talk about the symptoms and talk about some ways to for resilience and give uh, examples in, and give references to places where people can go. So that was my thing where we got to share this information. We're connected based on, you know, having the illness, but I need to be able to be that person that can say, hey, you know, why don't you talk to such and such doctor? Because they're fantastic. You know, they've done great um, in helping me. And I've heard other people have used them. And if you're feeling this, why don't you talk to this doctor? So they were really helpful in making those connections with um you know, letting me know what's out there and having me put more than just a label on lupus and actually figuring out what it is. Um, with the kidney dialysis, I was helped, I was instrumental in, I was one of the people that the doctors asked me to, kind of like the patient care advocate. So I guess that's kind of the title 
that they kind of gave a few of us. They asked me if I wanted to, because when I first started, I would ask a couple of patients, hey, you know, tell me about why you're here and what, what was your issue with the kidney disease. And some of them had um, genetic, genetic makeup, you know, they had family history of it. So I, I was curious. Some people would talk to me, quite a few didn't. They didn't want to discuss it. They just wanted to do their dialysis treatment and keep moving. But I was like, we need to talk if you want to. You know, I felt the need to kind of share it and have a conversation about it so we can, um, you know, because I wanted to unpack it. You know, I wanted to kind of just get a feel for it. So my my thing was when new patients came in, I did not mind talking to them because they had a lot of questions because I knew I did. You know, I had tons of questions. So I didn't mind when, you know, it was Dr. Reddy, uh, UFC. She was like, you know, you mind doing this? And actually the social worker as well. And I was like, sure. You know, so definitely being that patient care advocate helped. I was part of a, a song in- initiative or institute where doctors from all over the world came. And there were a couple of us from um, dialysis centers that would actually sit and have conversations about dialysis and kidney disease. And um, they would have meetings maybe once or twice a year and have discussions. So I was definitely a part of that. So that was powerful. Um, and, you know, trying to really make it, you know, quote unquote, um, comfortable, quote unquote, for kidney dialysis patients based on, you know, journeying towards the future. So definitely wanted to be a part of that. And anything that was modern and innovative and anything in the future wanted to be a part of making those changes. And, you know, everybody's like, why are you so positive? Because there was, you know, definitely when you're not feeling well, a lot of people are like, you know, I'm not trying to smile. I'm not trying to <laughs> show any type of anything, let alone resilience. All right. just alone, I just want to be. But I'm like, you know, I definitely, and I have a sign in my house. You know, I think I was created for such a time as this. God richly blessed me, you know. Um, So I'm like, why should I not share my gifts with other people? And my faith and my church and my church friends definitely are part of that community with that perspective and mindset. You know, yeah, you know, I have my pity parties just like anybody else, but Mm -hmm. I I jump up and I got to take care of business. And my mindset was, I felt that if you just lay in the bed, your body's going to be ridden with toxins. And um, I was like, no, I got to get up, at least try to. If I need to take a nap, you know, two hours (laughs) later, I might have to do that. But the blessing, too, was I have a dog. And I was like, I've got to, you know, take him out. Um, It was a funny story when I was at um, uh, this was Shirley Ryan Ability Lab. You know, they're like one of the best ability labs in the country and our rehab centers in the country. So I was there blessed to be able to go there. And I um, thought I only had to, you know, do five days, like Monday through Friday. I'm like, hallelujah. You know, my first week I had Saturday and Sunday off, you know, they slipped the note under my door and I, they were like, no, you have like four things, you know, four appointments. On Saturday. And I was like, oh my gosh. But when I got there, they said, well, what's your goal? And I'm like, well, I have 27 steps at my house. And my goal is to get up and down those steps. And when I first got there, I could only get up five steps. 
So they had like, um, you know, we did so many treadmill things where they had me in the, the holster or something you call it. And I would walk up and down these smaller stairs. And then, mm-hmm. you know, I had, um, they had a longer set of stairs. So I was like, I want to achieve those. But we set goals. You know, I was like, that was my resilience. I was like, I have a dog that I have to go home to. I have a house. I'm not trying to go to any rehab center if I don't have to. I don't, you know, want to do all that. I want to be back at home, you know, because it had been about two months at that point. Wow. And I want to be able to go up and down those stairs in my house. And that was a goal. And I achieved it after two weeks. Yeah, yeah. So that was a blessing. We snapped. Yeah, that was a blessing. I was able to do that. But I was like, mm, yeah, I got to be able to walk up the family stairs. Okay. And then the rehab person came the next day. So I was like, don't I get a break? Can I lay down for at least three days? Yeah, oh my goodness. Yeah, she was going to give you a break, all right. Right. Oh, gosh. (laughs) But it it worked out fine. Okay. And and this is Sel Dunlap's response. I I guess he heard us talking about his other comment. Mm -hmm. He said that he takes careful aim with the spiritual scope when shooting at his opposition, Mm -hmm. the devil and or Donald Trump and like characters. Mm -hmm. Mm Thank you for sharing that, Sam. Yeah, he is a, a wonderful guy. Wonderful. All right. So as we were talking, you know, the other day about your situation, we also mentioned, you know, that you know, nonprofit utopia is for nonprofit professionals, you know, emerging leaders. And mm-hmm. life happens. And every now and then one of us may find ourselves in a similar situation or even in the workplace, if we're managing someone who has um, significant health challenges or other things that would cause them to be resilient, or if we have colleagues, you know, what is some of your advice that you can give that will help people create a work environment that is conducive for people to recover? Sure. Definitely. And we talked about this a little bit where we have to really, I mean, sometimes people put labels on folks with disabilities Mm -hmm. and they assume that they're just in this box, you know, they're in this little box. And that is just so um, wrong, you know, basically awful to do that. So I think we got to really have conversations that we're doing deep listening to with the person one on one. Like if it was myself where it's like, well, what is your passion? You know, what do you really want to do and really serve the needs of the person? And then, of course, fitting with the needs of the organization or the nonprofit and and really looking at growth, too. You know, they have a a basic skill level and they uh, strive to achieve to a higher level. They're working with them, you know working with them and collaborating and holding their hand so that you get to that, that point that, you know, everybody's searching for. Um, But don't selling people short, don't sell people short. Mm -hmm. And that's sometimes what people do with people with disabilities is that they sell them short. They don't think they're capable. 
but definitely working and collaborating and saying, hey, you know, let's take this journey together. This is what you want to do if you see something in them um, and and helping them get to that area, showing that empathy, that compassion, that kindness uh, to develop, develop people. I mean, because there's this world is made up of a lot of people that are disabled. Mm -hmm. Yes. And they're good people. <laughs> yes. And then um, you shared um, your story on Facebook and um, other people had a chance to see what you're experiencing and able to respond. You had people supporting you, had people praying for you. Um, and I've heard other people too of, who have gone through um, difficult situations. Um, and just how did uh, sharing your story help you in your life when faced with um, these ex these difficult experiences? Yeah, I wasn't, thank you, that's a great question as well. I wasn't sure, oh, do I have a background going? I wasn't sure if I was going to share, <laughs> you know, because it's, when you're on Facebook, it's just so many people that are gonna see it. And then you're like, ah, if I wanna get a job later, am I gonna be stereotyped and, put in that box or that hole where it's like, oh, she can't do it. She's had kidney transplant, a heart attack. You know, she has all these health issues. But I was like, I don't care about that. I, I need people to hear it. So um, I'm sorry, your main question was, how did that sharing my story do what now? Help you when it came to um, facing um, what you're going through. Yes, so definitely me speaking it into existence helped me be able to, and I started remembering more. I realized that I was like, now I'm remembering a lot. You know, before it was like it happened, I move on. Um, I had even the beginning, people kept telling me, you know, you got to write a book. This is like incredible. Um, so I was like, yeah, you know, I'll get to it. And then I had bought some things and, you know, some little organizers and journals and somebody kept telling me just write every day, but I, you know, didn't do it. But then I was like, I need to share this because a lot of people that I knew people in college and high school had no idea, you know, all this was happening. So me doing that uh, kind of empowered me to say, you know, I, I went out there when I had lupus and, you know, tried to help people got on the board, you know, as a part-time, um, as a, a volunteer type thing, which was kind of like a part-time job, which was a lot of work, but it was good work, you know, one of those things. But it really makes you say you're put on this planet for a reason. You know, I'm here for a reason to, to be helpful to other people. You know, God didn't place me here just to, you know, just for my own self selfish reasons. I'm placed here for a reason and I need to put in the work. And I, you know, of course, I definitely owe it all to my parents, my, you know, Simon in Virginia and my brother who had, who passed away. And then I always think about also my ancestors, you know, I'm starting to trace my lineage and, and um, really connect with that. So I'm always looking at my ancestral heritage and how that connects with, you know, my ancestors prayed for me. My mother and father prayed for me. So if they were praying for me to 
have a better life and to do better based on how hard they fought and all the injustices and the racism that they dealt with uh, in life just to get ahead a little bit, then I got to pick myself up and handle my business. I need to not have, you know, long-term pity parties <laughs> and I need to get a grip and I need to, you know, either connect with other people because you can do more in groups. And that's why I fight, you know, a good fight with restorative justice practices mm-hmm. and working in communities and working nationally and, and doing things like that because I'm like, I got more to give. You know, if I'm not feeling in pain and I can get up every day and, you know, I have blood running through my veins, I am grateful mm-hmm. and blessed to be able to get up and I need to get in action and I need to do. So that's where that comes from. I mean, that tenacity comes from my parents, uh, the gumption of, you know, just spreading, just telling people your story. Uh, a lot of the work that I do with restorative justice is storytelling mm-hmm. and stories are powerful. You know, a lot of people in in the African-American heritage, we have a lot of stories, but some of us are ashamed of it. And the stories that we tell can be cleansing, you know, mm-hmm. and that's, that's the situation, you know, connecting with you, what you said, John, that that's very cleansing for me to share um, my health journey. It's very cleansing. And hopefully it's, it's helpful to other people so that they know that they can ask questions that they have a person like myself that has learned to do some deep listening. You know, I fall short sometimes, but to listen and to show that empathy. Mm-hmm. Okay, that is awesome. And on that note, um, I know you, you mentioned the role of faith, but do you wanna go a little bit deeper and share how your faith community played a role in your bouncing back? Sure, sure. I'd love to. Um, I was a member of the Church of Park Manor, um, United uh, Congregational Church of of Park Manor. So that was my church growing up. So we definitely were, I was definitely involved in, you know, the Sunday services every Sunday. And I was part of the choir. I I played the handbells, did different things. and was part of the youth group, which was, you know, tremendous and fun. And then switched over to United Church of Christ, Trinity United Church of Christ um, with Pastor Jeremiah Wright Jr. So that church was a tremendous blessing. And it definitely formed my faith um, and is a tremendous blessing and how I view just life and how I view religion. Um, Got involved in definitely um, some Bible classes and and worked with the Lupus Foundation as a committee and different foundations. I was in the women's chorus and just singing the praises of God, you know, in a church setting and to God's people and to people um, was a blessing to me, very cleansing, very uplifting and connecting with just the people. I have a, a group of seniors that I hang out with. We call them the brunch bunch. And, you know, they're, you know, definitely older than I am. Some are in their 90s, you know, wow. 80s. And we go to breakfast. I go with them at least once a month. And and definitely we just sit and chat. You know, we'll sit there for hours. I have to make sure my schedule is clear the rest of my day on Sunday. But, mm-hmm. you know, just connecting with intergenerational people has been uh, tremendous at Trinity also. It, it's made me more focused on 
my prayer time. I pray mm -hmm. with my prayer partner, Charlene, um, and we pray every morning. And I have a prayer group that I was praying with on Saturday. So we have, you know, it makes me focus on my purpose and, and, and what God has done for me and how yes. grateful I am. So it puts that in the forefront. It, it keeps me humble, you know, makes me remember, um, you know, God's presence is around me and I just need to ask and I need to be faithful and I need to be committed. Um, and of course, speak those words in that gospel to other people yes. and be an example. You know, main thing too is to be an example, be that light. So I try to do that. Um, and try to stay, you know, because there were so many people from my church and I had so many um, different phone calls from different ministers and deacons. My mother was a deacon at Trinity. Uh, she sang in the sanctuary choir. My father was an usher. He sang in the men's chorus of my oh, family. Yeah. Extremely active at the church. And um, the pastor there now, um, Pastor Otis Moss III, Reverend Otis Moss III has been phenomenal and he... Um, makes a nice connection with Generation X and then, you know, the seniors. So it's a beautiful intergenerational connection at our church. And it just, you know, the, the, the whole uh, actual service is just empowering. And it makes you not be complacent. It makes you say that, you know, let's go out in the world and, and do something and make changes and spread the faith of, of Jesus, you know, and, and how powerful God's love is. Beautiful. Yeah, faith played a very important role um, when it came to what you're going through. Um, also, you, we talked yesterday and you mentioned that um, when you're going through dialysis, um, people mentioned we have kidney disease. It doesn't have, have us. And that kind of made me think that you talked about this before, about setting your own personal goals and really thinking positively about these situations and how that helped you. Um, did you have any other strong positive thoughts or what would you recommend people that are experiencing this? Yeah, in terms of people experiencing kind of like the, the lull in, in terms of how they're feeling. Mm -hmm. Yes. Sure, um, definitely, I mean, you're gonna feel it. You know, when you have illnesses and you don't feel good or you have a situation where it's a long-term problem, you don't have energy, you know, I had some times when I didn't have energy and just felt like laying in that bed, um, you know, and people are doing things in life and you can't do them. You know, that that happens. That's real life. That's reality. But that's when you, you really got to speak up or have somebody speak up for you. You know, write down things that you have questions about to ask doctors how you can get better. And that's the thing. You got to push these doctors too. Into, you know, and asking them questions like, you know, what can I do? This is how I'm feeling. What can we do to, to make me better? What, you know, what else can be done? So you're really asking them um, questions. And then if you can't rely on, I think I had mentioned this, if you really can't rely on friends or family, that social worker is in the, is in the dialysis centers. And that social worker is a confident, they were, uh, that that was a person that I would talk to and, you know, just say, hey, this is where I'm at, you know, and if she couldn't handle it, then there were other resources mm -hmm. that they could refer me to. So you do get that law, you know, some people get it 
uh, a lot where and they some people just don't want to talk about it and just want to go through the motions of, for example, when you're having dialysis, they just want to do their dialysis and just go back to life. <laughs> right. um, yeah, it's like, okay, I've done my time. <laughs> I want to discuss it. You know, I had a couple of friends actually that were like that. And then I'll come back, you know, and every other day and I'll do that same thing and I'll go back to my life again. But there are some people that fall in that pit. Like I've been trying to get that transplant, still hasn't come. But then when they look at other people that have got it, that's when it's like, hey, there's somebody out there that you know you know, that has gotten it. Mm -hmm. And then making sure the center knows that people can reach out to those people. We had a string of us, there were about five or six of us that got them not in a row, but like every other month. It started in wow. December. Yeah. Uh, Zachary and then myself in February, somebody else. So we realized it was happening. You know, for a while there were like, nobody's getting transplants. And then it started happening. So looking and saying, it's happening to people. It can possibly happen to me if my body type and, you know, all the doctor's things are in alignment. Um, but then, you you know, still having hope, you know, and then talking to people. Because when I was on the threads, uh, the kidney threads and, and hearing what people were saying and, and looking at the words, you know, so many people are sad. They're depressed. They're sad. Understandably so. But, you know, I just always remind them, look at all have you exhausted all possibilities of everything you know um they always talk about possibly looking at other centers to have you know have the actual transplants if you can if you have family that can actually go there with you if you're calling but you're looking at all opportunities um and then again you know everything that can be done if you're not feeling well asking all those questions what else can be given and then you know just making sure you do talk to other patients. Mm -hmm. You know, if you don't want to talk to them publicly, ask for their phone number. You know, if you can have a conversation with them privately. But, you know, I, I truly believe in just not sitting and just not saying anything because that's not healthy mm -hmm. for you. You know, it's not healthy. Yeah. I tell you, <laughs> I'm listening to you and this conversation is therapeutic for me. You know, I haven't face major illness, but, you know, I've had some other situations that, you know, have been puzzling to me, to say the least. Mm -hmm. But from listening to you, it sounds like there are lessons to be learned in terms of, you know, being mindful of what you're doing, um, having faith, having a support system, Yes. Making sure that you exercise and eat properly, um, having hope and all of that good stuff. And you mentioned it once, but I, I want you to repeat it. What would you recommend to those people who don't necessarily have the same uh, network that you had to help you sure. go through? Yeah, definitely. Because, you know, I definitely, there were so many times in the beginning, I felt hopeless because my immediate family passed away. So I have no immediate family. So I was like, you know, it was sad in me, you know? So I was like, oh my gosh. But I had these wonderful friends step up. So, you know, if you don't have family um, that's going to step up, 
don't have friends that might step up, then, you know, again, calling on those professionals, you know, you, you got to call on the professionals that, you know, the doctors, you know, if it's the situation with the cardiac issue, the heart issue, calling on doctors, but asking about those support groups, those support groups are powerful, you know, and just like we say um, with the lupus support group, you know, some people just want to sit there and listen. You know, they don't want to talk. You know, they just want to sit there because they, you know, don't know what to say or they're not sure that they can trust. They don't feel safe yet. Right. But there are support groups out there and asking for a support group or taking the time to Google it. If you're feeling okay to do that, or, or again, asking somebody at the hospital to send you information um, if you're not able to Google it yourself, you know, asking them to suggest a support group to go to. So, you know, just using your words to ask and, and see if somebody can give it to you. If you don't have, um, you know, a family member or a friend that can help you out, uh, definitely reaching out and asking the doctors, asking the nurse, asking a social worker that might be connected to suggest a support group. And there's a lot of online ones, you know, there's tons of them because I found like two kidney ones and I was like, oh, you know, so, you know, and I was listening to some of the stories and, you know, with University of Chicago, I used to go to all the meetings because everybody's like, do you know about this stuff? Oh, yeah, I know about all of it. You know, did I practice everything I need to practice? Not all the time. But I would go to the meetings at the University of Chicago and hear, um, you know, the information about living donors and, and, and things of that nature. And you would hear the stories about how some people, you know, they would leave the folks at their centers and, you know, some issues of guilt. So having conversations just to talk about that stuff. You know, universities have them, different centers have them. Um, different centers have support group discussions. So just speaking it can help for some people or just listening. So that's what I would suggest. Awesome. And uh, you are resilient in every adversity you faced. You not only bounce back, you also bounce forward. How would you describe what it's like to bounce forward? And what would you recommend to others face with adversity so they can bounce forward? Sure, uh, definitely we talk about bouncing forward even in my restorative justice work. <laughs> so bouncing forward really means that you're moving forward. You're, you know, this has happened to you, you acknowledge this has happened and you're able to move forward. You know, your your body is able to move forward. So my thing is, if I'm able to, you know, because there was times even when I had lupus, I was, you know, I was too tired. I was exhausted. I, you know, lay in the bed and I would try to do a couple of things like wash dishes and I could only, you know, wash the dishes and I was exhausted. And I was, I had so much prednisone in my body. And um, the water weight was just tremendous. So trying to, and that's when exercise played that role. Of course, eating the healthy nutritional foods. So I was able to balance all that um, with that. And I just started working too. I immediately went back to work and that movement helped because those toxins would have built up. But I definitely believe in terms of people bouncing forward is, you know, if, you know, I truly believe 
my parents prayed so much for me for life, you know, and my ancestors prayed for the new generations for life that I got work to do. And I believe in other people, you got work to do. You know, there's things in this world you need to do um, for such a time as this. There, There's more life to live, whether you have a, you know, a goal to plan a trip somewhere or to buy something or do something that you want to do. So in terms of bouncing forward, definitely moving forward, you know, from your health condition and saying, hey, you know, let me set this goal whether it be short-term, long-term, or immediate, you know, like I'm going to do this tomorrow, you know, just do it. Set that goal and, and, and try to move forward. And there might be setbacks. You know, you might be tired, you know, a day, or you might just not feel like it. But, you know, it's, it's my mindset is, hey, I'm not going to just sit here and just wallow in pity and sorrow. You got to move forward got to keep pressing on. There's work to do out here, especially with what's happened in this world. I need to be a part of it. I need to help that next generation and, and you know, be a role model for other people and work with those older generations, too, that have taught me. Oh, I feel the same way. You know, there's work to be done out there, you know, whether it's with your families, with yourself in terms of what you want to do and achieve. Oh my goodness, that was absolutely beautiful. Thank oh. you, thank you. I appreciate you both. <laughs> All righty, uh, we got just a few minutes left, um, three minutes in regular time, but if there's anybody in our audience, if you have any comments, if you have any questions, please, we really wanna hear from you. Um, don't let this good knowledge go unacknowledged, right? If you don't do anything but clap for Vanessa, you know, this is a wonderful story of resilience. And I can't, uh, I just can't stress enough how helpful it's been for me. And I want to thank John, John Emenecker. He is a member of the nonprofit Utopia Community. It's his idea that we focus on resilience. And I can't thank him enough. Mm -hmm. And it has been very helpful with, for me too. Um, I'm learning more about resilience and hearing your story and what you went through and how you um, faced challenging situations has been very inspirational to me. And yeah, thank you. Thank you. Oh, really appreciate you. It's powerful telling um, my story. Very much so. Yes, yes, yes. Alrighty, so it doesn't look like we have any questions or comments. I want to say thank you so much to everyone for taking the time out of your busy schedule and on a, such a beautiful Friday to yeah. be with us and to hear Vanessa's story. Vanessa, we thank you once more. Thank you. Thank you all. Thank you thank all. You. It was a tremendous blessing to be and very grateful to be here. Thank you. Alrighty, and... Oh, we do have a comment. Gloria, Gloria Smith. You know Gloria. Thank you, Vanessa. Yes. Thank, Thank you, Gloria. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for all you do in the community, Gloria. I mean, just you are a blessing to so many of us. Thank you for carrying on your brother's legacy. 
we'll say his name, Philip Jackson. Mm -hmm. We really appreciate him and thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Gloria. Alrighty, so this concludes our session. You can check us out on YouTube. We'll have the video on YouTube. We hope that you can share it in your networks. And again, thank you. This is the Nonprofit Utopia live stream coming from Chicago. Thank you again. And you guys take care. Bye-bye. Thank you. Everybody have a good day.